<laughs> well, uh, needless to say, Holly and I are glad to be back. We have had a fantastic experience on our sabbatical. And uh, I want to say thank you to this church and to the, the leaders in this church, to the staff of this church that actually made a sabbatical possible. In fact, if you look at all the statistics uh, from attendance to giving and stuff that people look at who work at churches, uh, everything got better this summer when I was gone. <laughs> I don't know exactly what to make of that, but I'm going to be gone a lot more in the future. Uh, no, to Joseph and Josh and just Miriam, everybody on staff that uh, has just worked and, and labored and made this summer something really special. I want to say thank you. And all the officers. Yeah, yeah. I've been asked by many, you know, how was your sabbatical? And, uh, you know, going into this, I've never done a sabbatical before. Uh, so we structured it. And turns out, uh, in hindsight, I think we structured it in a really healthy, good way. We uh, took off in June and then headed to Europe for five weeks where Holly and I traveled. And, and really that was the only time that five weeks where I didn't think about this church. I, we were having an adventure every single day. And I just kind of to give you a feel for what we did uh, when we were there, we ate a ton. I mean, man, we ate a ton. And uh, then other things that we did, we, uh, I met the queen, talked to the queen. <laughs> It was really neat the way she received me, a very gracious lady, and uh, we talked over a lot of things. Uh, Holly and I did a lot of this when we were gone. Yeah, 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 a lot of this. This is actually called a kissing gate, and it happens to be the gate where, uh, who was it, Hall? Didn't work for them, though. Yeah, Diana and her husband actually kissed at this gate, but uh, anyway... Uh, we also, uh, I learned to play the bagpipes while I was gone, and I will be bringing that uh, into the band, and, uh, and let's uh, take a look here at the next one. Uh, we, we, sheep everywhere. I mean, man, are there a lot of sheep, and uh, we, we fed sheep. Let's see what else here. Yeah, that was a different sheep I was feeding on the Aran Islands. I, I actually sheared a sheep, got to do that, and... Uh, Next, here we go. We did more of that. That was awesome. It was just awesome. One of the highlights, really. Uh, looked for opportunity. We did a lot of hiking. This is actually in the uh, Lake District uh, in England, and we hiked up to the top of one of their uh, hikes there called Cat Bells. It was beautiful and just had a lot of fun. Uh, we ate a lot. Did I say that? Did I mention that we ate a lot? Holly took pictures of everything we ate. Next. And uh, another hike that we took, just absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous country. This is in Scotland. Uh, next. And we ate a lot. Uh, next. And I think that might be it. There we go. But uh, so the way... Let, <laughs> why would you clap for that? Anyway, the way, way we structured this, we got away. We were away for five weeks. And that was really... Uh, like vacation, it was rejuvenating. I, I read some histories of Scotland and England and uh, Ireland and got to enjoy the history and the place and the people. It was just wonderful. Then when we came back, we spent a week with family, and that was uh, uh, very rich as well, just an opportunity to get away with family. And then I had the month of August to think about, to pray about, and to reflect on uh, our vision and ministry here at Deer Creek. Had an opportunity to meet with staff during the month of August and and really have been working on um, 
asking God, God, what next? What is next for Deer Creek? How do we better serve you? How do we move more faithfully into bringing your kingdom, you know, up there down here? What does that look like for us as a people? And uh, that was a huge gift. I cannot say thank you enough to be able to focus on those things and pray about those things and, and work on those kinds of things and not be uh, preaching or pastoring or those types of things is is such a gift. It's a, it's a treasure, really. It's a gift that a lot of pastors are never given. And you gave that to me, and, and I just can't thank you enough. And, and here's the thing. I've told several of you this already. The way the sabbatical was structured, uh, I've been fully engaged in, in ministry here at Deer Creek for the month of August, but just not here. And so it, it makes it so much easier to step right back in. I'm not sure I remember how to preach, but, I, but I, I feel like I've been here in a way because I've been thinking about and praying so much uh, about this church and its people. And uh, another thing that we did on our sabbatical is every Sunday we would visit another church. And we visited some wonderful churches. But I can dang well tell you the truth. I'm glad to be home. And I mean it when I say I'm not sure I remember how to do this, so you'll have to bear with me on this first one back. Um, really, really glad to be back. And, and it's kind of ironic because uh, I'm not starting a series this morning with you. Uh, this message is a one-time kind of one-off message. It's a very, very big kind of shift of gears, actually, in terms of the emotion of it and the, uh, the things that we're going to reflect on this morning. So I'm going to have to ask you to kind of mentally, you know, shift gears a little bit with me. It's kind of a sober subject that we're going to dive into. And before we do, let's pray, okay? Let's pray. Father, we'd ask you, as we always do, uh, to be, please be our teacher, to guide our thoughts and, and direct us, God. We really do want to become more like Jesus. We sang a moment ago, Lord, in a chorus uh, about wanting to have our hearts break with the same kinds of things that breaks yours. And I caught myself, Lord, just singing those words and not even meaning them, not even thinking about them. But really, those are very scary words to pray. That our hearts would break over the same things that break yours. May your spirit work to that end in us this morning. For we ask this for the glory and the praise and the honor of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Well, uh, you all know what has been going on in our country this summer. You know, as we were away and traveling, there were horrible things happening in Nice in France, horrible things happening in Belgium. Horrible things happening in Istanbul and Germany, and we just kept hearing about them, and there was horrible stuff happening here this summer. This summer has been probably one of the bloodiest summers on record in the United States. June 12th, a gay nightclub was attacked by a man named Omar Mateen, and he was a, he's a self, was a self-avowed Islamic terrorist. And as you know, he went in and, and killed, murdered 49 people. Fifty-three were injured in that attack. On July 5th in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, an African-American man named Alton Sterling was shot several times while being interrogated by uh, white policemen. 
and there's a whole lot of uh, lack of clarity around what exactly happened there. Ten days later, three policemen were ambushed and killed by a black man seeking revenge. On July 6th in Falcon Heights, Minnesota, an African-American, Philando Castilla, was shot and killed while in his car. And the aftermath of that particular shooting was streamed uh, by, on video online, and, and that led to an expression of anger and a number of marches in many different cities across our nation. And in one march uh, that was protesting police brutality, five police officers were gunned down. If you know anything about the individual lives of these men, they were incredible men with incredible families. Brent Thompson and Patrick Zaram, I really can't pronounce his name, uh, Zamaripa, I think, Michael Kroll, Lauren Ahearns, Michael Smith. Seven more officers were wounded in that shooting spree and two civilians as well. I mean, if you reflect on the events that have happened in our country this summer, it's very, very clear that we are a country that is hurting. And likewise, we are a church, capital C, that's hurting. And in times like this, people will often offer a whole lot of opinions and points of view and thoughts. And I'm not saying at all that's a bad thing. I mean, that's a normal thing. But it can be a divisive thing if we're not very careful about how we express ourselves. And it just seems to me like it would be good, a good thing for us as a church family to spend a little bit of time thinking about what God might say to our country at a time like this. You know, is there wisdom from the scriptures, from the word of God, that could help us navigate events, and things that are happening in our country and in the world in a way that Jesus might navigate them. And I think God might want to say to me, probably to many of you, that just because things are going okay in our little world doesn't mean at all that things are okay. Our little world sometimes can be pretty insulated. You know, in Israel, a long time ago, there were these characters that arose, and they were characters. They were called prophets. And they were quite unique in the ancient world. They would come and they would speak to the people of God. And they would place kind of a gift, the word of God, um, upon the shoulders of the Israelites. But they would also place kind of a burden as they would bring the word of God to the Israelites. And uh, no other people really had this experience. No other people had a group of prophets quite like the prophets of Israel. And they essentially said there is a way that things are supposed to be. There is right and there is wrong. There's a way that our world is supposed to run and to work. And that, of course, would be the will of God. And God will hold human beings accountable, they would say. They would pull no punches in the preaching of this message. And they would make these amazing statements like the ones that we read in Isaiah chapter 11. This is a remarkable passage of Scripture, a remarkable description. In Isaiah 11, verse 1, it says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And, of course, Jesse was King David's father. And what this is actually saying is that there is going to come a leader 
from David's father, from the line of David, if you will. There's going to come a leader, and this leader is not going to be like any other political, military, spiritual leader that you've ever known or seen. It says the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Not come and go, but rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. That's another way of saying he will delight in honoring God. And he will not judge by what he sees, and we all do. We judge by very quickly sometimes by what we think we see. He's not going to judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears because lots of different people say lots of different things. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash at his waist. And then there's this picture of the way things are supposed to be. And there's language around the, the kingdom of God. And one of the words that describes the kingdom of God is the word shalom. It's a huge Bible word, a picture of, of perfect peace and righteousness and goodness all coalescing together and it says it describes the picture like this it says the wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them and the cow will feed with the bear and their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and the infant will play near the hole of the cobra and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest and they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. In other words, all the earth. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Picture that. And I think God would say there is a way that things are supposed to work in this world. And I think God would say, church, I want you to call it like it is when things are not that way. For example, we all know this. I mean, violence. Violence is wrong, yes? When Omar Mateen broke into a nightclub in Orlando and shot a bunch of people because they were gay, let's be real clear on that absolutely breaks the heart of God. God loves all people, cares about all people. An organization that Holly and I support with prayer and our finances is International Justice Mission. I bet a lot of you do too. It's a great organization. They work to free people from slavery and from sex trafficking, from things like that in various parts of the world. In June, we heard that they had three people who had worked very courageously to free a young woman who was being trafficked uh, in, uh, sexually trafficked in Kenya. And these three workers uh, worked tirelessly to free her. And the result of that was the ones who had been trafficking this, this young woman um, kidnapped these three workers and tortured and killed them, killed them, murdered them. And that just breaks the heart of God, that kind of injustice. 
I mean, hatred is wrong. Racism is wrong. Whether uh, we are outwardly speaking uh, words of hatred or telling jokes that that's the subliminal message, it is wrong. Injustice is wrong. For love not to predominate in human affairs, well, that's wrong. For me to put my head in the sand and just be concerned about my own little life, that too is wrong. It's wrong because these things violate God's will for how human beings are supposed to treat other human beings. That is not what God wants or intended. And this is not to minimize the complexity of the problems that are faced in all of this conversation or all the incredible amounts of work that need to be done to bring some kind of reconciliation um, to be. In fact, part of what makes it all so complex is is that what's wrong isn't just out there someplace. What's wrong is also right here inside of me. That's what makes this this whole area, this whole issue of the division and, and race and hatred and religious intolerance and all that. It's what makes it such a difficult conversation. There's darkness, blackness, brokenness in me. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Soviet dissident you, you may have heard about, writes these words. He says, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart, he asks. It's another way of asking. It gets really messy, doesn't it, when I start examining my own heart, my own attitudes, my own prejudices. You know, here at Deer Creek Church, we really, really want to be a a Jesus church, a Jesus-following, Jesus-honoring, Jesus-glorifying church. We always look to the person, the teaching, and the life, and the death, and the resurrection of Jesus for truth and for wisdom and, and for guidance. We always do. You know, when Jesus was alive here on earth ministering, there were tremendous tensions and conflicts in his day around ethnicity and and religion and justice kinds of issues, in particular between Israel and Rome, right? You're familiar with this. On the one hand, you had people in Israel who called themselves zealots, and what they were zealous for was overthrowing the authority and the oppression of Rome there in Israel. And so they called for the violent overthrow of these Roman oppressors. And it's worth considering that Jesus knew way more about what it means to be a victim of oppression and injustice than certainly I ever will, probably most of us in this room. When he was a little boy, a ruler named Herod wanted to kill him, wanted to destroy his family just because he was a little Jewish boy who posed a a political threat Herod wanted him dead. Now what that meant practically speaking was that Jesus and his family had to flee to another country where he and his parents lived as unwanted immigrants. That's our Lord. That's our Savior. When Jesus grew up, it was Roman officials that harassed him. 
It was Roman soldiers that unjustly arrested him, beat him. Jesus knew all about that kind of oppression and that kind of unjust treatment. And yet it's so interesting. <laughs> you know, Jesus, uh, in, his, in his inner circle, the group of 12, you all know this, one of them was a zealot, you know, Simon the zealot. Jesus invited him in. And at the same time, Jesus would then do things with his, with his disciples in tow. You know, he would do things like help or love or serve a Roman soldier. You remember one day a man came to Jesus for help, uh, and that man was a Roman soldier. In fact, he was a Roman centurion. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 8. And that was a hard thing in that day to even be a Roman soldier doing your duty there in Israel because they had to maintain Roman law and order in a place where they were mostly hated, absolutely hated, resented. And Jesus says to this man who's seeking help and and healing for his servant, Jesus says, I'll help you. I wonder what Simon was thinking. What? What? You see, Jesus created another way. And even though there was tremendous pressure on Jesus, and mind you, there was always tremendous pressure on Jesus. Hey, Jesus, whose side are you on exactly? Where do you stand? Are you a zealot? I mean, there's lots of injustice, Jesus, lots of oppression. There is lots of persecution. Rome is really exploiting us. They are are making us poor. They are killing us. You'd better be on the zealot side, Jesus. That was one voice. Another voice would say, well, you know, the soldiers aren't that bad. I mean, after all, they do enforce the Pax Romana, the the Roman peace and the Roman order and peace. Boy, if that wasn't being enforced, pretty much everybody would be at everybody's throat right now. I mean, those soldiers are putting their lives on the line every day. Whose side exactly are you on, Jesus? Law and order? Violence? Which side? There was another group of people, and they just kind of took a different tack. They said, you know, we're just going to withdraw from this whole thing. There was actually a community in Jesus' day. You've heard of them called the Essenes, and they they, they retreated into communities um, down near the Dead Sea area, and they lived in their own little religious enclaves, really. And basically they said, let them all go to hell. Let's us go be safe. Let's us go do our thing the way we want to do it, and who cares about these others? Let's have nice little lives and nice little careers and nice little children and nice little families. Let somebody else, you know, bleed over or care about this justice or injustice stuff. Let others march and protest. Let somebody else figure it out. It doesn't have to be our problem, they said. And here is the unmatched genius of a carpenter from Nazareth. I mean, this is why for centuries... People have given their lives. They have given their fortunes for the sake of following Jesus. Jesus said, you know, I'm going to love the zealots. I will recognize their humanity. I will listen to their pain and their hurt and their suffering. I will treat every one of them with dignity and respect as an individual that matters greatly to my heavenly father. And Jesus said, I'm going to love Roman soldiers. I will recognize their humanity. I will listen to and respond to their requests for help. I will realize 
that every one of them is not a despised Gentile pagan, you know, was kind of the attitude, but instead somebody that bears the image of my heavenly father. And when Jesus was crucified, remember, uh, this is, the Gospels are so full of these little facts that are what would have been startling to the readers of that day. We would read them and almost read over them. But you know the, who the very first person was to recognize the deity, the greatness, the grandeur, and the glory of Jesus? It was a Roman soldier. It was a pagan. It was a Gentile. Mark 15, 39, truly this man was the son of God. Jesus said, I will not choose the zealots and count the Romans my enemy. I will not choose the Romans and count the zealots my enemy. I will not withdraw with the Essenes into this little bubble of safety. I will immerse myself in the middle of all this pain and anger and confusion and sin armed with the love of my heavenly Father. Now, was that easy for Jesus? Well, remember Palm Sunday? Looked like maybe it was going to be easy. But after Palm Sunday, when it became clear that Jesus would not take up the sword and choose the way of violence to overthrow the Romans, all the zealots turned on him. And the same people who said, Hosanna, on Sunday, they were yelling, crucify him by Friday. So from Palm Sunday to Good Friday, the Roman soldiers had arrested Jesus, stripped him, mocked him, beat him, lanced him, executed him. Was that easy for Jesus? No, it wasn't easy. I think God would say to us, if you're going to follow Jesus in this world, don't expect easy. And I have to confess to you, I want easy. I want comfortable. I want quick solutions. I want problems that can be solved, you know, with a hashtag. I don't want to be troubled by hard questions that are confusing to me. And as I think about this and have thought about it, I have to say, here's the deal. If, if we're looking for easy... We have chosen the wrong God to follow. If we're looking for easy, then for goodness sake, don't follow Jesus. Jesus doesn't do easy. Jesus says, deny yourselves. Wish he hadn't said that. He says, take up your cross. I wish he hadn't said that. He says, turn the other cheek. Wish he hadn't said that. He says, love your enemy. You see, Jesus does love. And Jesus does hope. And and Jesus does forgiveness. But Jesus doesn't do easy. And I think God would say to me, in fact, I know he says to me, maybe to you too. Dwayne, you you need to rethink 
how you think about and how you respond to things that you don't necessarily understand or have firsthand uh, experience with. And maybe therefore, Dwayne, what you might do is be a listener before you speak, before you act, before you think you know everything. Just listen, you know, with, with humility. Oh, I don't love doing that, God. You know, I've had the privilege of knowing quite a few police officers over the years. In fact, we have the honor to have three or four, uh, some active and, and some re- retired police officers here in our, in our church. And um, their dedication and devotion, frankly, if you've ever sat with an officer, heard any part of their story, uh, it, remarkable stories, remarkable stories. The quick decisions they have to make, life and death decisions for the safety of others, for their own safety, for the safety of their comrades and the force. Incredibly difficult, incredibly stressful, getting incredibly more difficult all the time. Weighty stuff to bear. And when I think about that, I realize I will never know what it's like to be in those kinds of life-threatening situations and have to make instant life and death decisions. I'll never know what that's like. And we owe so much to the men and women who put themselves in harm's way for the safety of others. You agree? Yeah. I've had the privilege only a few times, to be honest, to get to talk to some African-American pastors about the racial divide in our country. A couple times in years past, uh, there was a group that gathered uh, in South Denver uh, for this purpose, and I, I got to be there, got to be a participant in that. And I heard some of those pastors share stories about things that had happened in their lives. Uh, I, I remember several of them talking about times when they were, they were pulled over. And the only reason they could figure out they were pulled over was because of their skin color. One pastor told about his son who just got his license, so he was just driving on his own and uh, got pulled over by uh, an officer, and again, wasn't speeding, wasn't breaking any laws, didn't get a ticket, but got pulled over, he guessed, just because of his skin color. I got to hear some of those black pastors tell stories about their growing up. Every one of them had a story about the first time they heard the N-word directed in in their direction. And the shame and the anger and the frustration, the devastation of all of that was very painful. And I realized I will never have a story like that. I'll, I'll never know in my family some of the pain and some of the fear and some of the hurt of experiences that some of those gentlemen shared in those meetings. And really, it seems a lot of it just because of their skin color. And I'll tell you, that's part of the lament that we've heard as a nation this summer. That's part of it. And so the question is, what do we do? What do we do? And here's my great wisdom. I do not know. I don't know what we do. Seems nobody's been able to fix this. Maybe we just begin with shutting up, with silence, with listening, 
with grieving, with prayer. Maybe we just pray together and acknowledge, God, our world is a mess that's way bigger than anything uh, just human brains or legislators are capable of fixing. It strikes me that when there is a crisis, you always hear a lot of voices saying, you know, we have to come together. We need to get along. Why? Why can't I just have my own little life that's going okay for me? You know, as a church, why can't we just have our own little services and sing our own little songs and learn how to raise our little families and manage our own little careers? Why do we have to come together? Why do we have to listen? Why do we have to learn? Why do we have to lament every single death? Why do we have to care? Well, the answer is pretty simple. And you know the answer. It's because Jesus did. It's because he cared about us. Why why did he have to care? You see, our God and our Savior and our gospel is not every man for himself. Grab all the comfort you can and hold on to it. That is not our gospel. We are called by God to recognize and care about the common humanity and worth of every human being. And that means we take the most precious thing we have, and that's the message about Jesus to every human being to whom we can take that message. That's our calling. In fact, we are taught that in Jesus, you know, there is no longer anything like Jew or Greek. You realize when those words were written, that rocked the world. Everybody that read Paul's letters going, wow, I, the Galatians, you were saying, what? What do you mean there's no such thing as Jew and Greek? No such thing as slave or free, male or female. No us versus them. What? They didn't clap when they first read that in Paul's letter. It was, I can guarantee it was like, ah, you just, are you sure this is from Paul? The Apostle Paul said, Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, Jew and Gentile, these two groups so far apart, these two groups into one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. There's only one person that can destroy dividing walls of hostility. Jesus' purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, bring the two together, bring all the factions together. Thus, Paul writes, making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death. He put to death their hostility. Has Jesus put to death your hostility? point is this. Jesus died for summers like this summer. And he, was, he has not called us to be comfortable consumers of the good life or architects of our own careers or opinionated ideologues of one political stripe or another. That is not what he has called us to be. He has called us to be agents of reconciliation. 
In 2 Corinthians 5, you know, these are words you probably, many of you have memorized. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Yippee, yay. That's good, right? But look at the words that follow. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. So how we act and how we live and what we do or don't do and jokes we tell and conversations we have, all of that is representing our God. We implore you, Paul says, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What righteousness you have, what real righteousness you have, where'd you get it? Did you get it by going to church? Did you get it by hanging out close to me because I'm full of righteousness? (laughs) Where did you get it? You got it from Jesus. You didn't earn it. You got it as a gift. Yeah, amen. You see, we are called to work and to pray and sacrifice until the day that Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 11, until that day finally comes in all its fullness, when people will neither harm nor destroy on all of God's holy mountain, and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And I'll tell you, if the church doesn't listen and doesn't care and doesn't act, somebody else will. If love doesn't lead the way, then violence will. Jesus wants us, his church, to figure out what caring looks like, what shape, what form it takes. You know, um, ushers, if you would hand out these cards, I I wanted to give you an example of what this looks like. This is actually a card that Martin Luther King Jr. uh, in the 60s when the civil rights marches were happening. uh, This is a card. Do the ushers have these cards? We ready to roll with this? We don't have them? They're in the lobby. There we go. Um, I, I think we're going to be able to put some of these, the, these up on the uh, slide. This was what Martin Luther King Jr. would take into churches where he would speak, and he, he would be challenging people who were persecuted, uh, people who in many cases were attacked, people who were denied the vote, people who were living under Jim Crow laws. They couldn't eat just anywhere they wanted to eat. They couldn't go just anywhere they wanted to go. He was challenging those people who were constantly belittled and diminished to subscribe to values like this. And he gave them his commitment card. On, his, on this one, there's only eight. On his, there were ten. The last two on his were, you know, go to a march and, and participate in the march. And since we don't have a march planned, I couldn't put those on there. But But this is the things he said, would you commit to meditate daily on the teachings and the life of Jesus? That one right there alone would change all of us if we just did that. He said, would you commit to remember always that nonviolent movement seeks justice and reconciliation, not victory? He said, would you commit to walk and talk in a manner of love for God is love? 
said, would you pray daily to be used by God in order that all men might be free? He said, would you sacrifice personal wishes in order that all men might be free? That really is mind-boggling to me that he would be asking his audiences to sign and make commitments like this when what they were experiencing was the brunt of lack of freedom. He said, would you observe with both friend and foe the ordinary rules of courtesy? He said, would you seek to perform regular service for others and for the world? In other words, be the hands and feet of Jesus. Love people when there's an opportunity to love them and serve them. And would you refrain from violence of fist, tongue, and heart? And when I came across this some years ago, I I was was blown away by it. I thought, wow. 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 If we as a church would commit to this kind of thing, and and then that means try to figure out what it looks like to live with those values and and those principles, I I think we would have a major impact on the people around us. And I just give you that as an example of what some others have done in other difficult times. There's plenty there for us to think about and and, um, and even bring into our own life. He would ask them to sign it and put their name on it and turn it in, and, and then their, uh, their practical application was get out to the next march that's coming to your city and live out these principles. And they would go out to those marches, and sometimes living out those principles meant having dogs sicked on them, being beaten by the authorities, having fire hoses turned on them, being put in jail, losing their jobs, and various other kinds of violence. And they did it anyway. It's convicting to me. So what are we going to do? Well, here's what we're going to do today. And, and, and I don't want to diminish what this is. This is important. This is a great place for us to start uh, in terms of a response to the, thinking about some of these things. We're going to pray as a church. You know, we've done this before. We just open up the floor and give an opportunity for people here to to pray. And uh, let's put, uh, do we have any bulleted points? I don't know, do we? Are they coming? There we go. There are some things we can pray about. Pray for our nation. Pray for the families of those who have died this summer. Way too many families are grieving in Dallas and Minnesota, Orlando, Louisiana. Pray for churches all around the country and all around our area that they, like us, would be listening and trying to figure out what it looks like to be Jesus in the midst of turbulent, confusing times. Pray for the leaders of our government. Would you all agree they need prayer? Yeah. Would you all agree that we probably don't pray enough for them? Pray that the church will be an agent of reconciliation. Pray about your own heart, because, of course, that's where all this starts, doesn't it? In our own individual hearts, how will we respond? How will we care? How will we seize opportunities to share the good message of the gospel of Jesus Christ with others? How will we live out that message and be the love of God to others? So let's pray. We're going to take some time to do that, and, and then we're going to come to the table here together, which, by the way, is the visual symbol that Jesus has given us to loudly proclaim to us that none of this is easy. 
be able to do anything that we're talking about starts with the very Son of God laying down his life and dying for us so that we can change and be different and be like him. Let's pray. And so if you want to pray, it'd be great. Maybe if you would just stand where you are and pray loud enough that people in this room can hear you. We're not a big room, so it shouldn't be too hard. Uh, but let us pray with you, and let's let the Spirit of God guide us. And when it seems like it's time to close, I'll, I'll close us in prayer. Okay? Let's pray. Amen.
Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers and the cry of our heart. We pray, God, that you would change our hearts so that we would care. Care about more than ourselves, God, and our own comfort. We pray that as a church family, uh, you would give us insight and wisdom into how to be a light upon a hill, how to love people that may be different than us, how to love people with uh, deep need, 
And we pray, Father, that, uh, that you would break our heart with what breaks yours. And we pray, Father, that uh, the forgiveness that we receive in Jesus and the high price that he paid in order to give us forgiveness of sins, we pray that that more than anything else would motivate and move and empower us to turn around and love others. We pray, Father, that uh, even as we come to this table to partake of this sacramental meal, this reminder of the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus, that we would do so in faith. We would do so in trust. We would do so as a people clinging to you, coming to you, holding on to you, and asking you, Father, to express yourself, yourself through us. I pray for students in our church. I pray, God, that as they've gone back to school, they would be different than their peers. They would be lights to their friends. They would love and care about and serve others differently, the way Jesus would love and care. Thus, Father, in our places of work, in the marketplace, uh, uh, where we spend so much of our time in our neighborhoods, uh, where we parent, I pray, Father, that we would do what we do in the power and the wisdom and the love of Jesus Christ and therefore do it differently. Father, we, we need forgiveness of our own sins and we celebrate and we rejoice in the truth of the gospel that we are given that forgiveness. Now, Father, feed us, nourish us, strengthen us through the ministry of Jesus in our spirits. For we ask this in his name. Amen? Well, we get to come to a table now, and it's a great way to conclude our time together because messages like that guy just preached are really depressing. And uh, this isn't. This is not depressing. Yeah, amen. This is good news. This is uh, our sins are forgiven. This is the hope that we can change. We're not stuck being who we are. We can become like Jesus because of Jesus. So... Jesus in the upper room took a cup with his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for the remission of sin. And he gave it to the disciples and he said, drink. Little did they know that first evening when they were drinking that they were literally going to be participating in the sacrifice that Jesus was about to offer and that that sacrifice was going to be the key to breaking the power of sin in their lives. Jesus took the bread in the upper room and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And there's some weird, mysterious, wonderfully spiritual way in which when we come in faith to this table and we partake, we're in some sense spiritually ingesting Jesus. We're being fed spiritually by the work of Jesus. And we can take steps in becoming more like Jesus through participation in this meal by faith. So we invite table to participate, we, um, we would just remind you that the one prerequisite is that you have faith in Jesus, um, that you understand that he has paid for your sins. And um, what we'll do is we're going to have three stations up here. The band, you can come on up. We, we, we have, uh, we're going to have three stations. You're going to get up out of your seats, and you're going to move to your left. There'll be a station here, a station here, and a station over here. And uh, you can form a line, and you'll tear off a piece of bread, and you'll dip it in the, uh, one of the goblets. The goblet here with the little bracelet on the stem is wine. The other goblet is juice. 
And we simply invite you to come feast upon the one who has never done easy. He did the hard work, what needed to be done, so that you and I could be forgiven and be made new. So come feast on Jesus. Those who are going to serve us, if you would come forward. And as soon as these folks are in place, uh, you're welcome to get up out of your seat, move to your left, and, and uh, there you go, and partake. There you go. Three. What we could do is we could put a station in the back for people that are, uh, you know, near the near the back, and you could get up and go that direction. Okay. There you go. Do we have somebody with Stephen? He's gonna. There we go. Thank you, Ashley. You guys, why don't you go to the back? That'll give them an option uh, that way. Okay. Come feast.